Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. I just came from the uh, other service, the B3 service, and a uh, good crowd over there. And everybody was excited, and I hope you're excited to be here today, too. So last week, we started this series about Jonah, and as the video kind of portrayed there, we're talking about running from God. And we kind of came to the fact after we looked at chapter one that Jonah was the most prominent, the ultimate runner in Scripture from God. But we also kind of talked about a lot of us run from God and what that looks like. Now, some people, they have trouble with the book of Jonah. Some of the skeptics scoff at it because they just don't see how someone could live three days and three nights in a fish or a whale. Scripture doesn't actually, doesn't actually say it's a whale. A lot of people say that. You hear the words Jonah and the whale. But Scripture just calls it a big fish. Could have been a whale, maybe not. And perhaps you've heard the story of the, uh, the, the little girl who was on an airplane flight, and a gentleman was sitting next to her, and uh, she had a little storybook with her. And the man asked her what the storybook was about, and she held it up where he could see it, and it was about Jonah, and the whale was the name of the book. And the man said, well, do you really believe that story? She said, she said, yes, I believe it. He said, well, why would you believe that story? And she said, well, it's in the Bible, so I believe it because it's in the Bible. And also I've been taught that in Sunday school. And he said, so you really believe that, that a man could live three days and three nights in a big fish and a big whale? And she said, yes, I do believe that. And uh, he kind of scoffed her at it, her a little bit, and he said, well, how can you prove that that story is true? And the little girl thought for a moment, and finally she said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And the man was a little bit arrogant. He was kind of proud of his intellectual superiority, and he said, well, what if you get to heaven and Jonah's not there? And she paused, and she thought for a minute, and then she smiled at him, and she said, well, when I get to heaven, if Jonah's not there, then I'll let you ask him. <laughs> so last week, I introduced us to the first part of the story, and I'm just going to do a little bit of quick review. Jonah was upset because God had sent him to Nineveh. And Nineveh was part of Assyria, and Assyria was just, they were just known, the Assyrians were known for, for their just being barbaric and for their cruelty. And they had, you know, they just figured out slow ways of torturing and killing people. And they were kind of the enemies of the Israelites. And, and Jonah didn't want to go there. As I mentioned last week, that would be like a Jew when you were sent, you know, you go to Germany in, in 1941 and you'd be a missionary there. You know, it's not a place that you'd want to go. And it's kind of that kind of idea. So, so Jonah didn't want to go there. And he disobeyed. And he ran as far in the other direction from where God wanted him to go as he possibly could. Jonah was a runner. I think all of us, at different points in our lives, we run from God. God sent him to Nineveh. Show that map up there again if you would. We looked at it last week. You can see Joppa. That's where he got on the ship at. You can see where Nineveh is kind of there to the uh, northeast, and he goes 2,500 miles in the other direction, the opposite direction. 
And we spoke last week about how when God tells us to do something, so often our response is we just do the craziest things. So, I mean, not only does he not go, he goes in the opposite direction. This would be like God tells you to go to Minneapolis and you go to Miami. God tells you to go to Seattle and you go to Savannah. Just opposite directions. And that's what he's doing. He's running from God. So he gets on this boat in Joppa and he heads for Tarshish, which is kind of a tourist city in southern Spain. That's where he's headed. And while he's on that boat, this storm comes up. And this is not just your average squalls on the ocean. These seasoned sailors on this boat, they sense that something's not right. I mean, this, this is a really bad storm. And in the ancient Near East, it was kind of customary when these kind of things, you know, just because they didn't know any better, they would attribute these kind of things to the gods with little g. And so they're trying to figure out, they're thinking something's wrong. There is a God that is dishing out destruction because somebody on this boat has done something bad. And so the sailors ask Jonah, who's responsible for this? Who are you? Where are you from? And they begin to badger him with questions. And Jonah says, well, you know what? You're right. It's my fault that the seas are raging like they are. And it's because of me. It was obvious to everybody that he was running from God. And so they asked him this strange and hard question. What should we do to you to make the seas calm down? Now what would you have said if you'd have been Jonah? You know what's going on. Would you just have quickly said, yeah, throw me overboard? I don't think that would have been my answer. I think I would have started trying to think, you know, maybe I'd plead the fifth. I don't know. I have no idea what you need to do. Or maybe I'd pick some small things, you know. Uh, maybe if you say mean things to me, the ocean will stop. Maybe if you shave my head, the ocean will stop. Maybe if you pop me real hard with a rubber band, maybe the ocean will get calm. You know, just, just something like that. You know what Jonah says in verse 12? He says, pick me up and throw me in the ocean, and the ocean will become calm. I know that this storm is because of me. Wow. If you've never read that story, is that what you would have expected? That basically Jonah says, I need to commit suicide. It's my fault. I'm the one that's responsible for this. And if you guys are going to survive, you're going to have to throw me over. And basically, I'm committing suicide. You have to admire Jonah for that. Because he owned it. He didn't say it's because of my environment. He didn't say it's because of my dysfunctional family. He didn't say I didn't have this and I didn't have that when I was a kid. That's why it happened. He just owns up to it. He said, this is my fault. And so they throw him into the water. And Jonah is probably convinced that he's going to die when he hits the water. But immediately the water becomes calm and it's smooth as glass. And I'm sure Jonah's re he's relieved. I'm sure the boat captain, he's happy. The seas have stopped. 
And, you know, maybe he's praising his God. And probably the guy that's shipmate next to him is like, yeah, thank goodness we're going to live. But don't pick that guy back up. Don't put him back on the boat. Don't do that. And Jonah's probably relieved and he's looking for a log or something that's floating around to, to kind of attach himself to. And maybe just as his adrenaline rush starts to subside, he sees the ripples in the water. They're getting closer and closer, and the ripples are getting closer and closer together. And all of a sudden, a big old mouth opens up on a big fish and swallows him whole. Could have been a whale, the Bible doesn't say. But here's what's really important about this part of the story. This is significant, you know why? Because this tells us that God prepared this fish. And this was part of God's plan here. It just wasn't some accidental mammal that swallowed up Jonah. This was part of what God was doing. And Jonah is going to be inside this fish for three days and three nights. And it's almost as if the fish is rescuing Jonah from the sea. You see what's happening here? We run. We do crazy things that don't make sense. We make de bad decisions when we're running away from God because we don't have God's wisdom and truth speaking to us. And people run from God all the time today. They run into bad relationships and they make bad decisions and they run into debt. They just do stupid, crazy things because God's not talking and speaking with them because they don't want God to. Jonah made this terrible decision and God chases them down and he catches up with them. And Jonah's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by the sea. He's overwhelmed by the fish. He's overwhelmed by the storm. And he's overwhelmed by his own guilt. You ever noticed that when you run from God and God kind of catches up with you, that you feel guilty because you realize what you've done and the guilt is just kind of there. We realize the error of our ways. So here's the question this morning. What do you do when you're a runner and God catches up to you? What do you do when you've been running and you get caught? If you have your Bible, turn over to Jonah chapter 2. All the words will be up on the screen too. If you're turning in your Bible, as I mentioned last week, it's the easiest way to find Jonah is to go to Matthew, which is kind of fairly easily to find, and then go backwards seven books and it'll land you right on top of Jonah. So we're going to mostly be in Jonah chapter 2 today. Jonah's been running. He gets caught. How does he respond? Because there's some great principles for how we should respond. And the first thing that you notice, he calls on the Lord. And Jonah chapter 2 kind of opens up with probably one of the most unique statements to open up a chapter in all of the Bible. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And yeah, I bet you if I was inside a fish and still alive, I'd be praying too. And so he is praying here. Now let me point out something here. Some people focus so much on the three days and three nights and how did he live through that, that they miss the point of the story. They miss the, the whole significance of what Jonah is about here. Talking, talking about the three days and three nights. What does Genesis 1-1 say? 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God can speak into existence the entire world, does it seem like a big deal that God can keep somebody alive inside a whale for three days and three nights? I mean, that just seems like child play to me for God if he can speak the world in existence. And did you know, just from a from the physical standpoint of the size of, say, like a sperm whale, that this, this isn't a big deal for, for a sperm whale to, to swallow a man. Their mouths are 20 feet, just the average one, not even the big ones. The average sperm whale's mouth is 20 feet long, 15 feet high, 9 feet wide. That's not a big deal to swallow a man. They've caught sperm whales throughout history that had giant squids in them that were bigger than men. And did you know there's actually at least one historical example of a man being swallowed by a whale, a sperm whale, and living? In 1891, off the Falkland Islands, there was a ship by the name of the Eastern Star. And they were hunting for whales, and they spotted one. And so they launched two smaller boats to go harpoon the whale. The first boat hit the whale, had the harpoon in it. And the second whale, or the second boat moved in a little bit closer to put its harpoon in. And when it did, the, the fins of the whale hit the second boat and capsized it. One man was drowned and they recovered his body. And another man by the name of James Bartley, they couldn't find him and they just assumed he was dead. So eventually they killed the whale and they pulled it up alongside the boat, beside the ship. They took the blubber out and then the next morning... They took the whale's stomach out. James Bartley was in the whale's stomach. He was still alive, made a full recovery, and went back to work. So certainly even, you don't want to believe the Bible, you can believe history and believe, believe science. But it says Jonah prayed. It says he prayed in his distress. So he's praying fervently. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. It says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. So he's describing everything that took place in the fish. And he goes on to say, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Listen to this. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. And what he's describing here is the whale would come up, blow its stack, whatever they call it, then he'd go back under. Up, down, up, down. And he's describing that whale going up and going down. He goes on and says, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. <coughs> so Jonah, he's overwhelmed here. His response. What is his response to God here? He doesn't get angry. He doesn't rebel some more. He doesn't get silent. He doesn't get depressed. Because I think that's what a lot of people do. When God catches up to them, they get mad at God. 
or they get depressed, or, or, or they cast the blame somewhere. Jonah doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He calls on God. His attitude is one of repentance. It's a surrender. It's, it's a reaching out. He calls out to God because he knows the only one that can get him out of this mess is the one who created this mess. I want you to notice something. We talked about this last week. God is not punishing Jonah. God is getting Jonah's attention. And there's a difference. Jonah responds to his guilt by turning to God and asking for help. And your sin, whether it's past sin or present circumstance, your starting place is calling out to God. You know, some years back, we had a uh, man that started visiting our church, and, and he wasn't a believer, and he had done some, some terrible things in his life. And he began to attend here, and God was working in his heart, and months went by, and he told me this story later. He said, one morning, I walked out of the services, and he said, the guilt was just overwhelming me. And he said, I got in my car, and he said, I started driving home, and he said, I just couldn't get home. He said, I pulled over to the side of the road, but he said, I didn't know any special prayers to pray. He said, I didn't know what to say, but he said, I just started crying out to God. And I started crying out to God about all the bad things and things that I knew were wrong in my life. That's what we're talking about here. The word repentance is at the center of all this. When I say the word repentance, I'm talking about going in one direction and then turning completely 180 degrees and going in the other. That's what the word repentance means. You're going one way, and then you turn 180 degrees and go the other way. That's what's taking place here. Jonah is repenting. He's turning around. Eventually, even in a physical way, he's going to head back to Nineveh. Now, here's a question for you. At what point do you think Jonah repented? Do you think it was the first day he was in the fish? Second day he was in the fish? Third day? I tend to think that it was kind of when he was still up on the deck. I think it came about the time that he told those guys when they were having that discussion about what they needed to do with him, and to their credit, they didn't want to throw him overboard, but he said, you're going to have to throw me overboard, that I tend to think it happened sometime then. They didn't want to throw him off, but they had no choice. So you know the guys, I, I, I imagine they're going, somebody's going to grab his feet and somebody's going to grab his hands. One, two, and then some guy says, wait, 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 wait. Do we let go of them on three or after three? And they start all over. One, two, three. And off Jonah goes. And I think before he hit the water, he had already repented. I think by that point, he had already basically said to God, God, I mean, he's about to be in the water by himself. God, I'll go to Nineveh. I'll go to Narnia. 
I'll go to both. Wherever you want me to go. I'm a new man, God. Whatever you want. I think that 180 degrees had already happened. When I was a kid, my dad used to spank us with a, uh, he had an ammo belt. He was in the Air Force, and this was an old one that he didn't use anymore. And it was about, I don't know, three, three and a half inches that way, and at least a good quarter inch to three-eighths of an inch thick. And uh, he wouldn't spank us with the belt part of it or, you know, use the whole thing, but he would fold it in half, and then he would just pop us with that thing. And I mean, that thing hurt. How many of you, when you were kids, your, your parents spanked you with a, a spoon, a switch, a belt, something? Just, just raise your hand. All right. That's a pretty good number. Not quite as much as the, the other service, but, but a good number. And, you know, I'm glad he did it. I'm a better person because of his discipline. Some of you are glad that your parents did it. And some of you wish your parents would have done that. But it didn't take me long to associate that belt with pain. Or maybe to say it differently, it didn't take me very long to associate that belt with my rebellion and disobedience. And that was a good thing. So as soon as my dad would bring out that belt, I'm sure some of you were like that, I'm like this, I was a new man. Right? You know, this is not necessary, Dad. I would repent. I won't go there again. I won't do that again. Or I'll do this. I'll eat my green beans. I'll eat my brother's green beans. But this spanking thing is not necessary, Dad. I'm sorry. And here comes the belt. And I've repented already. And I'm like negotiating. Wait. Wait, Dad, wait. I promise. I get it. We don't have to do the, the spanking thing. I'll never do it again. Just like the sight of the belt caused me to repent. And you know what would happen after I negotiated with my dad? He was spanked me. <laughs> Negotiating never worked. Because you know what my dad knew? And our Heavenly Father knows? Discipline needs to be thorough to make sure it doesn't happen again. And discipline brings us back like my father would bring us back. He did it because he loves us and our Heavenly Father's the same way. And the reason we have guilt when we're running from God is because we know we've done wrong. And that guilt just can overwhelm us. It's also interesting to note that Jonah prays this prayer while he's still in the fish of the belly, not knowing if he's going to be saved or not. Look at verse 6. You brought my life up from the pit. He's still in the fish's belly. He's surrounded by seaweed. But he prays as if he already knows that this is going to happen. When you begin to know that God's heart toward you is loving and gracious, it'll change the way that you look at sin. Because you realize that God is not simply waiting in heaven to judge you. And that changes everything. So the first thing we do when we run and we get caught, if we're going to do like Jonah did, 
we call to the Lord. The second thing is, we remember the Lord. That's his next response. Look at verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, he thinks he's dying. His life is ebbing away. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So what he's doing is he begins to recall past things. And you know, a lot of times when tough times come in our lives and, and things that we don't understand come, one of the best things that we can do is to remember the past. Because we can look and we say, okay, there was this tough situation and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I can see God's faithfulness, how he brought, it, brought me through it. And you can do that time and time in your life when, when the tough storms roll into your life. You can see how God has got you out of other storms. And that's what he's doing here. And he remembers other times when God was faithful to him. And so he realizes that God is going to be faithful to him now. Now, we all make mistakes, right? I mean, people, everybody makes mistakes. Sometimes our mistakes, our sins, are, are premeditated. You know, like Jonah here. This was premeditated. He planned this out. Sometimes we have sin where we deliberately know, this is not what God wants me to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's, that's premeditated sin. And then there's other sin where... You know, we're just, we're just living life and we kind of get our focus off of God and, and we fall into the, 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 the sin traps. That, that's a different kind of sin. We get distracted, we stumble, and we fail. Well, my two oldest boys were in elementary school. One evening, Renee and I were going to go out on a date. And uh, we were going to go out and eat, and uh, I think we went to Lowe's after that. Just kidding, I don't remember that. <laughs> But anyway, we go out, and uh, we leave the two boys. They're, they're elementary age at that time, the two, two oldest boys. Uh, one was 10, and one was about 7. And my left my oldest daughter in charge. She was older than both of them, so we left Bonnie in charge. And uh, so we went out, and we came back that evening, and we walked into our bedroom, and just immediately, I looked at the bed, and it caught my attention, because we had two king-sized pillows on the bed. Well, the pillows weren't laying horizontal on the bed. They were laying upright, like pointing up in the air, you know, long ways. I'm like, well, what's the deal with that? I didn't leave those pillows like that. So I walk over, and I move the pillows, and there's a great big hole in the sheet rock, like the size of somebody's head. And I'm thinking, what's in here? Horseplay, wrestling on our bed, doing something that they're not supposed to do. You know, I'm just kind of thinking about the scenarios and how this big hole got there. And then I thought to myself, you know, somehow in their seven and ten-year-old minds, they could make a hole in the wall and then cover it up with pillows, and dad and mom would never move those pillows. I mean, right? Why would dad and mom move pillows? So I called them in, asked them about the pillows. Asked them about the hole in the wall. They both denied knowing anything happened. In fact, they confessed that Bonnie probably did it. Well, eventually, they came forth with the truth, and it was exactly what I thought. They'd gotten in there and were playing around, and somebody's head had got into the wall and made a hole in it. You know, we had a talk that night about disobedience and lying and consequences for your actions. Also about how mistakes happen, and everybody makes mistakes, but 
You need to own up to your mistakes. Like my boys, sometimes we make unwise choices and we make a pretty big mess. Sometimes it's an accident. Sometimes it's like Jonah, we make a very deliberate <laughs> choice. And there's consequences for our actions. Do you know what God promises us? He promises us forgiveness. He is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. We even have a song. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. What do you do when God catches up with you? You call on his name. You repent. And then the third thing you do is this. You worship the Lord. Let's notice verses 8 and 9. In these verses, Jonah pledges his worship and obedience. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So he's talking about grace here. And he's talking about, their, at that point in history, there was still a lot of idol worship. He said people that worship idols, they don't understand God's grace, and they forfeit that grace. Of course, nowadays, we don't have idols like little statues and stuff that we worship, but we have other kinds of idols, materialism and maybe a relationship, things like that, that, that we tend to worship, hobbies. He said when you do that, you forfeit God's grace. And then he goes on to say, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And ultimately, the only way to deal with the guilt of the past is to worship. Here's why. Guilt is a very self-centered emotion. When I am feeling guilty, what am I doing? I am looking at myself and I am feeling sorry for myself, but I think I shouldn't have done that. Look at the consequences of what I've done. And it's just pretty much focused on yourself. But when you worship, where does the focus go? It goes off of yourself and onto God. And when we worship, we realize how big God is and how great God is and how small we are. So when you get caught, that's part Go back to God if you worship. Listen, I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care about your past mistakes. There is a God who's chasing you and is pursuing you and is willing and wanting to forgive you. And you know what my fear is sometimes when we look at Jonah, we come across with the idea about how powerful God is. He was powerful enough to create a storm and stop the storm and create this fish and save Jonah's life and those things. And God is powerful, but he's also personal. He's a personal God. He knows everything about you. He knows all about the stuff that you, everything you've ever done in your life. He knows about the bad stuff. He knows about all of it. And he still loves us. Yet we want to carry that guilt around and carry around past things. I think probably a lot of you have seen the movie Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan. For those of you who haven't seen it, I'll try to set this up the best I can. And for those of you who have seen it, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. When the movie opens up, the first scene, 
there is a man in a cemetery in France. And he's in front of a tombstone. And you can tell he's very upset. And you don't know why he's upset. And he's in it looks like he's in his 70s or 80s. But you can tell he's visibly upset and he's, and he's looking at this tombstone. And that's how the movie opens up. And then it shifts gears from that scene to D-Day. And men are dying as they land on the beaches and all that confusion and stuff. And, and then the story of saving Private Ryan is this platoon of soldiers that were given the task of finding Private Ryan and bringing him out from the front lines of the battle. And the reason they were trying to do that is because all of his brothers had already been killed. And they did not want for, this, for these parents that their last son would be killed. So they, they were tasked with the, the responsibility of finding Private Ryan and bringing him out of the front line so that he could go home. And during the course of the story, men died trying to save Private Ryan. And there's a point toward the end of the movie where Tom Hanks, it was his character that was in charge of finding Private Ryan, the officer in charge. And he's mortally wounded. And by this point, they had found Private Ryan, they just haven't got him to safety yet. And he's mortally wounded, and Tom Hanks' character looks at Private Ryan, and he says, make sure that you live your life worthy of the men that have made these sacrifices to get you home. Something to that. Then it goes back at the end of the movie, back to the cemetery. And the man's in the cemetery, he's upset, he's crying. And you look at the tombstone and you realize it's Tom Hanks' character. And then you realize the man is Private Ryan himself. And his life is 78 years old. And he's overwhelmed with guilt. Did I live my life? in such a way that these men who didn't get to live their life, who sacrificed so that I could live my life, have I lived my life in such a way that they can be honored? And he's just overwhelmed with guilt. The difference between you and Private Ryan is we don't have to struggle with guilt. We don't have to worry about whether we've lived our life good enough. God knows all about us. He knows all about the crud, all about the stuff. And he loves us just the way we are. He says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know whosoever it is? It's all of us. That's everybody. Whosoever. You know that same term in John 6, 3.16. That's the, the promise that God makes. Whosoever. Why would God spare Jonah? Why would he give him a second chance? He spared Jonah because he wasn't done with Jonah yet. And he gave him a second chance because he admitted his guilt. He repented and he cried out to God. So today, wake up. Stop running from God. 